Hello and welcome to another episode of the Desi EM Project Podcast. I'm Ankur and today I'll be talking about another one of my favorite topics, which is trauma resuscitation. Now, as we know, trauma is one of the most dynamic entities undergoing continuous research for years and years. There is just so much of information and updates on trauma out there, both civilian and military. A lot of civilian trauma protocols have been based on military data over the years. And a lot of countries upgrade and update their trauma protocols with time. But our country still lacks good trauma care, be it pre-hospital care or in the emergency departments. You know, uh, The golden hour of trauma when the fate of the trauma patient is decided is still a concept quite alien in Indian emergency departments. What we do and how we do is of utmost importance for a trauma patient. Today, I'm just going to give a snippet into trauma management. This is just a drop in the ocean, but I hope it inspires some change and upgrade the way they manage uh, trauma patients in the future, you know. Now, on a fateful night in Nebraska in 1976, a plane crashed, which changed the way the world looked at trauma care. Dr. James Steiner lost his wife and almost lost his children. That night, he figured he could give better care in the field than what was provided to him by the health center his children and him were taken to. It sparked a flame in Dr. Steiner and he made a resolve to create a standard of care all trauma patients should receive no matter where they are. And so in 1978, in collaboration with the Lincoln Medical Education Foundation, the first ATLS or the Advanced Trauma Life Support course was delivered. It was further adopted by the American College of Surgeons in 1980 and later spread throughout the world to be taught in more than 80 countries. Now, ATLS facilitated a common language among trauma care providers. It emphasized the importance of a team approach and introduced the ABCDE sequence to trauma care. But the strict adherence to the approach has been questioned in recent times. Now, imagine if you have a 50-year-old male construction worker who has fallen from the second floor of a construction site and is brought to your emergency department. Uh, His GCS is about 12, which was uh, the same in the field. And in the ED, you evaluate the patient as per the ATLS protocol. Now, his vitals uh, at the time of uh, evaluation uh, were a respiratory rate of 28 per minute, an oxygen saturation of about 90% on oxygen, heart rate of 115, a blood pressure of 103 by 80, and a temperature of 98.8. His airways assessed to be patent and air entries decreased on the right side. A fast scan is done, which is positive for free fluid in the right and left upper quadrants. His pelvis is mechanically stable. The peripheral neurological examination is normal. He has no past medical history and takes no medications and has no drug allergies. So what do you do? Now, as per protocol, your team and you approach the patient in the following sequence. You intubate the patient expecting a poor clinical course. You put a chest tube and then you start a blood product uh, administration and about one to two liters of crystalloid infusion as an initial bolus. And then you send your patient for a scan, a CT scan. Now, as you intubate the patient, the blood pressure drops to 60. Now, suspecting a tension pneumothorax, you do a needle decompression and another liter of crystalloids for the shock is given. The systolic pressure does not rise till the blood products are administered and tranexamic acid is given. He is then shifted to the radiology department for a CT scan where his pressure drops again and more flows and more blood is given. He's finally diagnosed with a frontal hematoma with right-sided pneumothorax with liver and splenic lacerations. Now, what we need to understand is that trauma care 
goes beyond the guidelines of the ATLS. The guidelines are exactly what they are, guidelines. They are the least minimum one should know regarding trauma management. Now, emergency medicine and trauma care are like the rails running parallel to the sleepers or the guidelines. Now, unfortunately, in a lot of places and practices, ATLS guidelines are followed very rigidly and the vastness of trauma care gets forgotten. Now, like I said, uh, like I mentioned before, trauma resuscitation is a complex and an intricate process which involves multiple team members or even sometimes just one or two people. They have various roles. They have to do simultaneous evaluations, examinations, management and disposition of the patient in a very, very coordinated manner. Now, according to the shared mental model theory, a trauma team's performance is optimized when the team members have a common understanding of the team and task requirements without the need for explicit discussion. Now, preferably, regular team training exercises and or pre-briefings before patient arrival should be a norm. This helps to establish a workable shared mental model of team-based and task-based processes, particularly when it differs from the standard ATLS approach. Airway evaluation, as we all know, is always necessary as soon as a trauma patient arrives to the emergency. But unlike the ATLS paradigm of airway management first and then correct the rest, a new approach, which varies slightly, has now been advocated and is of utmost importance. The definite airway should be established first only if there is critical hypoxia, which is not responding to high flow oxygen and any other supportive airway maneuvers, or if the airway has dynamic injuries like a blunt or a penetrating injury or a burn injury to the head, neck or the oropharynx, that may compromise the oxygenation, ventilation, or airway management of the patient, and that are suspected to worsen on a very short time course. Now, we know intubation causes an, as, uh, an increase in intrathoracic pressure, right? So result, with this results in a decrease in right atrial pressure. Now, the reversal in this intrathoracic physiology following intubation has a significant impact on the shock states that are common among patients with trauma. In hemorrhagic shock, an already low venous return can decrease further with positive pressure ventilation. Pre-intubation hypotension is a significant risk factor for post-intubation cardiac arrest, highlighting the importance of adequate volume resuscitation before intubation. Now, in, a, in obstructive shock states, like you know when you have tension pneumothorax or cardiac tamponade, decreased venous return and may also worsen may also be worsened by positive pressure ventilation. Focused interventions, uh, you know, to relieve these obstructive causes should always be considered before intubation in order to optimize the hemodynamics and thus establish safer peri-intubation and post-intubation conditions. Furthermore, only a small percentage of patients with trauma require definitive airway management immediately on arrival in the ED, which are those with critical hypoxia or who have a dynamic airway. Instead, most patients benefit from aggressive resuscitation before intubation. Interventions include those that can stop hemorrhage, optimize perfusion, and relieve obstructive shock causes. Once these interventions are initiated or completed, then definitive airway management can be proceeded with. If intubation is not required, then the trauma team can proceed with their plan towards definitive care. Now, we also know that shock is a clinical state defined by circulatory failure, resulting in insufficient cellular oxygen use, which manifests with clinical and hemodynamic derangements. 
occult shock can exist if these obvious clinical disturbances are subtle or absent despite underlying hypoperfusion. Now, traditionally, ED physicians have applied the ATLS shock classification to predict the amount of blood loss, a system which comprises of four shock classes using vital signs and mental status. The widespread application of this system, although occurred without any formal study, research or validations. Now, a study of a German trauma registry showed that only 9.3% of patients with trauma can be properly categorized according to the ATLS shock classification. In an audit of the United Kingdom Trauma Registry from 1989 to 2007, patients progressing to stage 4 shock, which is more than 2 liters of blood loss, increased their heart rate from 82 to 95, while showing no significant changes in the GCS, respiratory rate, or the systolic blood pressure. Now, challenges exist in the early identification of shock in patients with trauma. That's absolutely true. Now, variable pathophysiological and compensatory mechanisms which produce a range of hemodynamic presentations that can complicate assessments. Now, during the initial resuscitation period of a trauma patient, indices for shock identification can broadly be categorized into uh, two categories. Clinical indicators, which are obtained exclusively at the bedside, and lab indicators, which can also be obtained at the bedside. Now, the clinical indicators include the vital signs, the vital signs, the shock index, and obviously a bedside ultrasound or a fast scan. While the clinical indicators include base deficits, lactates, viscoelastic assays like Rotem and transelastography. I'm not going to go into the details of these uh, indicators in this podcast. I'll save that for another episode. Now, on arrival in the ED, 25% to 30% of severely injured patients are coagulopathic, and they will fail to form adequate clots in response to hemorrhage. This is called acute coagulopathy of trauma shock or trauma-induced coagulopathy. This is a hypocoagulable state where a patient is just going to bleed to death if the correct steps are not taken. And if you have determined that your trauma patient is having massive hemorrhage, then this is where damage control resuscitation comes into play. Now, damage control resuscitation is a concept which is generally accepted as a strategy which is paired with damage control surgery. The major principles of DCR is to restore homeostasis, prevent or mitigate the development of tissue hypoxia, oxygen debt, and the burden of shock, as well as coagulopathy. Now, permissive hypotension is conceptually the most difficult part of the damage control resuscitation paradigm to understand and to implement. DCR, like I mentioned before, temporarily prioritizes hemostasis over perfusion and permissive hypotension is the means to achieve that. Now, remember, restoration of a normal blood pressure in a bleeding trauma patient is not a goal at any point during the resuscitation. Have a threshold for a lower systolic blood pressure, like about 90 to 110, while watching for signs of poor perfusion. This is where your research skills are tested the most. Now, ATLS guidelines historically advocated a very linear resuscitation strategy, beginning with an emphasis on crystalloid infusion, particularly during the pre-hospital phase and initially in the emergency department, followed by the addition of red blood cells and finally plasma. Platelets were delayed until a low platelet count was documented and reserved either for severe thrombocytopenia or thrombocytopenia in the presence of active hemorrhage. 
Now, I know many departments which still focus on giving massive amounts of fluids to the bleeding patients. Even other specialities who have trained in ATLS years back when called upon to see a trauma patient end up pumping these bleeding patients with fluids. Crystalloid resuscitation will contribute to acidosis in a trauma patient and should be avoided. These fluids will cause hypothermia, which will again worsen acidosis and will worsen the coagulopathy, and this becomes a vicious cycle. Now, giving fluid infusions, be it crystalloids or colloids, causes dilutional coagulopathy, anemia, endothelial damage, and tissue edema, all of which are associated with poor outcomes. High-volume fluid resuscitation has been shown to increase trauma-related bleeding, organ failure, and mortality. The use of an initial fluid bolus to determine responsiveness is itself now very, very controversial. In a patient who has lost about 40% of their circulating volume, a bolus of 500 to 1,000 ml of crystalloid will lead to a 15 to 30% dilution and worsen existing coagulopathy. We don't want that in our, in our bleeding patients. Now, in short, the practice of giving large amounts of crystalloid during the initial resuscitation is no longer standard practice. So what should we do for the bleeding patients? What do you think? When you lose blood, you need blood. Now there is now strong evidence in both civilian and military trauma populations that the bleeding trauma patients benefit from a one is to one is to one ratio of packed red cells, fresh frozen plasma and platelets. This has been associated with improved survival and we in our department for one implement this very, very religiously. Now, what about other hemostatic agents? Now, effective tonicates have been developed for extremity injuries and can help in combating bleeding from an injured limb. Reboa, or resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta, has now emerged as a novel technique for controlling truncal hemorrhage, but we shall discuss about it on some other day. Next, we have the good old tranexamic acid, or TXA. It has been shown to reduce mortality if given within three hours of trauma. You should give one gram IV over 10 minutes initially, followed by one gram of uh, one gram infusion over the next eight hours. Hypocalcemia is also a problem in most of the actively bleeding trauma patients on presentation. And administration of even one unit of citrated blood product can further lower ionized calcium to levels approaching critical values. One gram of calcium, which is about 30 ml of a 10% calcium gluconate or 10 ml of 10% calcium chloride. So one gram of calcium IV or intraosseously can be given to patients in hemorrhagic shock during or immediately after transfusion of the first unit of blood product and with ongoing resuscitation after every four units of blood products. Now, as soon as you have resuscitated your trauma patient and you've done your damage control resuscitation, your goal should be to shift the patient to the OR for damage control surgery to be done by the surgeons where they can plug the tap from where the patient is bleeding. Now, in conclusion, I just go over a few points, a few important points that you should remember when you're dealing with trauma patients, when you're training with your trauma team, right? So the shared mental model within the team will play an important role as to how the incoming trauma patient will be handled in your emergency department. Trauma does not start and end with ATLS. Trauma is much more than that and never forget that. Think beyond ATLS. Keep it as a baseline. Keep it as a basic skill and then modify your plans accordingly. You are an emergency physician. You can do much more than ATLS. Go for the definitive airway as first step in times of only critical hypoxia, which is not responding to adjuncts 
or when there are dynamic injuries to the head, neck, and face. Do a resuscitation sequence intubation. Look for signs of occult shock. Always look at the shock index. Avoid giving fluids to your bleeding patients. Do them some good and give them blood instead. Remember the 1 is to 1 is to 1 ratio for blood products and do not forget tranexamic acid. Don't take my word for it blindly. Do your own research, guys. Make your own department protocols after you've done your research. I've enlisted a lot of resources that you can go through, read them, understand them, and then upgrade your trauma game. You are the king of your team. Own the trauma patient. Own the trauma team. Go save some more lives. See you guys soon.